Our text today comes from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 22, verse 31 to 34. If you'll direct your hearts and give your attention to the reading of God's word with me. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Let's pray together. Father, we bow our hearts before you, asking, Lord, that as we open your word, you would do a work in us, that you would open our hearts, open our minds, give us spiritual sight to perceive and understand what apart from your work we will not understand. God, I thank you for the grace that is given to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to herald the only one that can save men, that can reconcile sinful man to a holy God. God, give us ears to hear this day. Lord, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. We pray that as, as it's declared, that faith would, would rise up in our hearts and that we would trust what you would say. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, our passage today begins with the Lord Jesus opening for us a window into an unseen world one that I would submit we don't take into consideration as frequently or as soberly as we ought. The devil's operations and designs in the world. Jesus tells Peter here in this chapter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. So while God has good and gracious purposes for Simon, the devil has his own. Satan had his own agenda in the life of Simon Peter. Job chapter one and verse two, uh, Job chapter one and two comes to mind here. That passage where Satan comes to God and the Lord asks Satan where he's come from. Satan says, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it, like a, like a wild predator searches out for its prey, so Satan searches out God's image bearers. And this all brings to the fore this reality that there is a spiritual battle waging over the souls of men. You can't see it, but it's nonetheless real. Arrayed against us are the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil 
in the heavenly places. The devil has schemes, the apostle Paul says. Snares, devices are other words that are used to describe his working among men. Things he uses to tempt and discourage and to, to stamp out the faith of those who trust in God. He works to call the word of God into question in order to unseat our trust in the Lord, to, to disestablish our faith in his promises. When the gospel is preached, uh, Jesus says that the devil comes and he tries to, to pluck up the word as it is planted or as it is sown so that the lost may not believe and be saved. Peter himself warned about the need for sober-mindedness and watchfulness. Why was that? Because he says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. One has to wonder whether Peter had in mind this episode as he was writing those words. Whatever the case, the devil is active in the world and we're foolish if, we're, if we forget it and we are naive if we think we are impenetrable to his attacks. I wonder if it caught Peter's attention when he heard the Lord Jesus use his pre-Christian name, Simon, Simon. It's the first time that Jesus uses that name since he had called him to himself and asked him, who do you say that I am? And Simon said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And you remember how Jesus says, bless are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter means rock. It is a word that is reflective of that good confession that Peter made about the Lord Jesus Christ. But now in this episode, he's Simon. Not so stable. Not so rock-like in this moment. That may have been an indication that something of the old man was at play here, that there was a question of identity at stake in what was about to proceed. And you see that it's spoken twice here uh, for the sake of emphasis and solemnity. That kind of rep rep repetition is usually found in the sort of context where there is a sort of urgency to the plea. Martha, Martha, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. That image of, of sifting is a picture of violence, of violent shaking. Si uh, Satan wanted to, to beat and batter Simon Peter. And truth be told, it's not just Peter that Satan is after. The word you in the original here is actually plural in verse 31. Uh, both times that it is used, second person plural. 
if we were going to put it into more personal, uh, colloquial terms, regionally appropriate terms for us, we might say something like this. Simon, Simon, look, Satan, des- des- Satan wants to have y'all that he might sift y'all like wheat. All the disciples are in view. They're all in the devil's crosshairs. And indeed, we know they're all going to turn coat. When the shepherd is stricken, the sheep of the flock are scattered. They will all fall away. Every single one of them is going to have their Peter-like moment. All Christians are the objects of Satan's fiery darts, Ephesians chapter six. I think it is easy for us to identify with Simon Peter. We all know what it is for our faith to to falter and to hesitate. It's easy to see a reflection of ourselves in him. We can see our weakness. We see the frailty of our faith and we can recognize at least in our more honest moments how impetuous and self-reliant we can be. We hear the craftiness of the devil's schemes, his intention to bring destruction to the lives of God's people. Maybe we look at our past and we think back about our, our past failures and we wonder to ourselves, given all that we see here, how can I possibly stand? What hope do I have of persevering and making it to the end, considering all that is arrayed against me? Look at what Jesus says. Satan demanded to have you, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Dear ones, where shall we turn in the face of this onslaught of devilish, principalities and powers. What hope do we have, powerless and helpless as we are? We have only to look to the risen and ascended Savior seated at the right hand of God who lives always to make intercession for us. Jesus tells Peter, now he's, he's speaking in the singular, but I have prayed for you, Peter, emphatic, that your faith may not fail. So, so there is a warning and an application for all followers of the Lord Jesus Christ here, but now Jesus turns to Peter in particular, ministering in this personal, powerful way. Satan wants you all, but I have prayed for you, Peter. Now, notice just one, at least, of the implications here. It is just being revealed to Peter that a time of testing is in store for him. But before Peter ever realizes it, we come to discover that Jesus has already prayed beforehand, sealing Peter's perseverance. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that wonderful? Because God is sovereign over all things. And the devil can do nothing of his own accord. Jesus mercifully intercedes on Peter's behalf before the temptation ever comes, knowing exactly what he's going to face. 
Thomas Manton says this, the remedy was prepared for him before the trials came and the plaster fitted before the wound was made. Jesus prayed. And so while Peter's faith may falter and stumble in many ways, and we will take that up together in a couple weeks time, his faith will not fail. It won't fail. The word prayed in verse 32 is the same word we find in Hebrews 5 and verse 7 where it talks about Jesus' own personal life of prayer during his earthly ministry as he faced trials and temptations. This is what it says there. This is Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. That's our word for prayer with loud cries and tears to him was, who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. When Christ was hard-pressed, prayer was offered up to God. When pressures and afflictions came upon him, prayer and supplications flowed out of our Savior. He submitted himself to the only wise God who he knew does all things well. And it was because of his piety and his fearful reverence, the scriptures say, that he was heard. Because of his perfect submission to the will of God, he was heard. His prayers were answered. The point here is that, as it relates to our text is that Christ's prayers for his people are always heard. They're always efficacious. They're always infallible because he is one with the Father. He always prays in accordance with the Father's will, which means that the prayers he prays always reach their desired end. We cannot say that of our prayers. We seek to, to grow and be discipled by the scriptures so that our lives or our prayers are more reflective of God's will as it is revealed in his word. But we cannot say that our prayers are always reflective of the will of God, but we can of the Lord Jesus' prayers. Take John chapter 11, for example. When Jesus is in the middle of Raising Lazarus, he lifts up his eyes to God and he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard. And then John lets you in on this little bit of parenthetical dialogue between the son and the father. Jesus goes on and he says this, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. I knew that you always hear me. What a wonderful thing it is to know that the Father always hears Jesus. He always hears the Son because he always prays perfect prayers. Now, some of you may be finding yourself thinking, well, that's great news for Peter, but what about me? How do I figure in to this prayer ministry that Jesus has got going on? Well, here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus prays for you as well. If you are in Christ, you have 
trusted in Jesus for salvation, Jesus prays for you as well. He has an intercessory ministry that keeps and preserves and causes his people to persevere to this very day. This is one of the most glorious, soul-stabilizing, heart-establishing, assurance-lending truths that the scriptures teach to God's people. And yet it is unfortunately underemphasized and many times entirely overlooked. Many Christians today labor under the false impression that we are saved by the grace of God, but then it's really just up to us entirely to persevere in the, in, in the faith. They wouldn't say it this way, but effectively this is how they think. We are saved by grace, but we reach glory by grit. They think, well, it's up to me to make it to the end. It's, it's the strength of my resolve. Everything is hanging on. And we can make this sound very spiritual sounding. We can think, if I don't pray enough, or if I don't read my Bible enough, or if I don't live up to some standard of Christian devotion, whatever it is, however I construct this in my mind, I'm in serious trouble. Or if I don't somehow uncover and repent of every known possible sin within my heart, God is going to smite me for it. And as a consequence, they live their lives in perpetual fear. They live without any assurance of God's love for them or of his keeping power. Maybe that describes you. What comfort do the scriptures bring to those who are laboring under that kind of thinking? Christ's love is so deep, it is so vast, it is so infinitely beyond all human comprehension. And we see one glorious facet of it here. Jesus prays for his people. What he did for Peter, he does for you. In fact, you would do well to insert your name today in place of Simon's in verse 31. Just say it to yourself twice. We have a Savior who holds his high priestly ministry forever because he continues forever. He lives forever, the writer to the Hebrews says. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented from death, by death from continuing in office. Death, death prevent, prevented them from continuing in their ministry. They could no longer present sacrifices to God and offer prayers on behalf of the people, but that's not true of of Jesus. It's not true of God's son. God sent his son in, into the world who gave a once for all sacrifice for sin. And then he rose from the dead. That's what makes him the guarantor of a better covenant. He holds his priesthood forever. Not because of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. In other words, not because he descended from the line of Aaron he holds it by the power of an indestructible life. He remains forever. Now, what does that mean in practical terms? What bearing does that have on us today? Well, listen to what it says from Hebrews 7 and verse 25. Consequently, 
he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you see it, church? What does the writer to the Hebrews ground this this glorious hope in, final salvation for those who draw near to God through Jesus Christ? The fact that Jesus Christ, our great high priest, ever lives to make intercession for us. Those who call on faith, call in faith on Jesus Christ, will be saved to the uttermost because Jesus, our great high priest, prays for us. Consider that. Jesus takes your name before the Father. In the same way that Israel, Isaiah says, was engraved on the palms of the Father's hands, her walls continually before him, so too are we graven on the heart of our Savior, before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. We have a Savior whose work was finished on the cross. It is true. He said, it is finished. Atonement has been made. The penalty for sin, it's been paid. It has been paid in full. Justice has been satisfied. But Christ's ministry on our behalf continues in the heavenlies. There are different passages of the Bible that call us to different sorts of things. As we sit under the ministry of the word, there are passages that call us to faith and repentance. There are passages of scripture that require something of us in the way of obedience. This passage is a passage that invites us to take comfort and to glory in the fullness of Christ's saving work. It's a passage that invites us to find our rest in knowing him, a salvation that is from end to end, all of grace, all of grace. In our lost estate, the Lord Jesus searches us out. He comes and he seeks and saves the lost. In our redeemed state, he upholds us by his hand. He carries us and he sustains us all the way till our faith becomes sight. So we have every reason to appropriate Christ's words to Peter to our own account, to take comfort in the totality of his redemptive work, knowing, yes, he does pray for me. J.C. Ryle has been a, a good friend to me throughout the course of this study, so I'll let you hear from him again today. He says, the continued existence of grace in a believer's heart is a great standing miracle. His enemies are so mighty and his strength is so small. The world is so full of snares and his heart is so weak that it seems at first sight impossible for him to reach heaven. The passage before us explains his safety. He has a mighty friend at the right hand of God. He has a mighty friend at the right hand of God. So is your soul full of trouble and fear? Get yourself relief here. 
Find comfort here. Look not to yourself, but to Christ, who pleads on your behalf as he did for Simon Peter. Hebrews 9, verse 24. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, not into some physical temple, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Christ is at this very hour now in the presence of God, going before the Father on our behalf. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, who is to condemn? Do you ever fear condemnation? Do you ever find yourself fearing that though you have believed on Christ, you will somehow be condemned at the last? That for some reason, the faith you have in Christ today will be found lacking at the end. Romans 8, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's Paul's answer to the, the fear of condemnation that Jesus prays for us. You see, Jesus is our sufficiency. Jesus is our hope. It's not the, 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 the strength of our faith. Jesus is the one that we put our trust in. You are not alone in your trials and your temptations. The Lord Jesus is with you interceding on your behalf. He knows the particularities of your temptations. He knows what it is to be tempted himself. Hebrews 2 says that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect for this reason, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, how does he help those who are being tempted? Are you being tempted? Yes. Yes, we're, we're still in these mortal bodies. We're being tempted. The world, the flesh, and the devil. So how does Jesus help, help us today? Well, one of the chief means is by this. He prays for us. He intercedes on our behalf. We can grieve our sins and lament our infirmities. We can sorrow over our weakness and weep over the smallness of our faith. But let's not ever forget we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So let us hold fast to our confession. Let us hold fast to what we believe. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When you find yourself cast down, remember the words that God has set before us today. He is able to save to the uttermost those that draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. It is the power of Christ's intercession, not the strength of our resolve that keeps us from failing. It's all of grace. 
Jesus continues with Peter, go on with me. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He does not shield Peter from temptation entirely. You remember Christ's prayer for the disciples in the upper room, John 17. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He permissively wills the tempter to come that that Peter may be tested and Peter will falter. We all stumble in many ways, the Bible says. Peter will stumble. That is implied for us in the idea of turning here. That is a word that is frequently connected in the Bible with the idea of repentance, Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Paul and Barnabas at Lystra, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. You remember how the Lord Jesus commissions Paul to go to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Peter will need to turn again because Peter will turn away. But the whole Christian life is one of continually turning again unto God. Continual repentance. Jesus says, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. We see here the redemptive power of God. Does the Lord Jesus wash his hands of Peter? No, not at all. Instead, to the praise of God's glorious grace, he puts into place a preemptive plan to use Peter for his glory as a testimony to his mercy and grace. Peter is going to be one of God's premier agents who will minister the grace of God to other disciples who have stumbled and fallen and need to be strengthened, who need to be encouraged. Well, that church, that's that's paradigmatic for all of God's people. That's the pattern For all of us, that's Psalm 51 in action. You remember after David falls so grievously with Bathsheba, is God finished with him? No, David prays first for his own cleansing, for his own forgiveness. He has to get right with God first, but but that's not the end of the story. Then he, he makes this declaration then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Isn't that awesome? Isn't it awesome to see the kind of God we serve, the kind of people he delights to use? There's a very real sense in which this ties into what we looked at together last week, our service toward one another. Who are the kind of vessels the Lord uses? Are they men and women who have an impeccable record? No. 
They're the kinds who come along their brothers and sisters and say, let me tell you about the mercy of God. Here's how I know. Here's how I know. You see, I was once in this very low spot, but the word of God came and was ministered to me through a brother or sister in the Lord, and I discovered the grace of God, and I am not who I used to be because of what God in Christ has done in me. When we see a brother or sister who is caught in a transgression, Paul says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, who are the spiritual? Who are best equipped to minister in a spirit of gentleness? Among other things we might mention, we're looking for those who have grown to this place of maturity in part because they have an abiding sense of their own sinfulness. That's why they are so careful to do what Paul goes on to say in the next verse, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. You see, they, they know I am not operating on some elite spiritual plane here. I'm conscious of the danger of spiritual pride myself. I know that I am vulnerable to temptation. And so I must be careful to come with a humble heart. Coming to one caught in a transgression saying, you know what? I've been right where you are. I've stood right where you stand. I know what it is to be gripped by a prideful heart or whatever else it, it might be. I know what it is to be full of self. Let me tell you about the mercy and compassion of Christ. There is only one with an impeccable record. His name is Jesus Christ. Only one. There is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Whatever your track record is, whatever kinds of sins you are hiding, bring them to Christ and he will cleanse you, he will heal you, he will grant you forgiveness and to top it all off, he will make you a vessel useful in the master's house. How gracious is our God who can take a man like Peter, men and women and boys and girls like us, he can take Peter and he can say three times over, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Bring restoration and then set him to work. Now notice Simon's reaction. He has heard the devil's demand. He's heard of Christ's intercession. He's heard the pronouncement of his impending return, which is to say he's going to turn away. So how does he respond? How should he have responded? Let's make this more personal. Knowing what we have seen, that the God of this world would want to sift us like wheat, how should we respond? We should be vigilant. Knowing that he would have us, we should cling to Christ, loving him with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Knowing that Christ prays for us, we should be grateful. We should place all our confidence and trust, both in salvation and in sanctification, in him. 
and praise him every day for his keeping power, his sustaining grace. Knowing that like Peter, we are weak and prone to turning away. We should be humble. Now look at Peter's response. What does he say? Verse 33, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. This is ironic because Peter will indeed go to prison and to death for the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is quite a claim knowing that this, of course, was not true. He wasn't ready to go either to prison or to death. So what was the problem here? What was going on in Peter's heart that made him so eager to make such a claim for himself? In a word, we could put it this way, his faith was misplaced. Peter's confidence was situated in the wrong thing. He had as the object of his trust, not the Lord, but himself. It was grounded, not in this unshakable understanding that he was a weak man who apart from the sustaining power of the grace of God was actually destined to fail. He grounded his hope in himself. When Jesus said, Satan wants to have his way with you, you're going to turn away, at least for a time. Simon Peter effectively thought, oh Lord, you don't realize who you're talking to. You don't understand what a stalwart I am. Others might be susceptible to that sort of thing, but not me. In fact, that's exactly what he says in Mark's account in the very same episode. He says, even though they all fall away, I will not. Ouch! Mm, Those words must have stung later on. On a scale of one to 10, how strong do you think your faith is? This is a passage that makes me shudder to think of even daring to answer a question like that. It's really a foolhardy question, isn't it? But it exposes how highly we tend to think of ourselves, how eager we are to compare ourselves to others, how poorly we actually know ourselves and how crafty and deceitful sin really is. Have you ever found yourself watching the demise of some Christian leader wagging your head instead of thinking there but for the grace of God go I? That is the same spirit we see in Peter alive and well in our own hearts. It's there, brothers and sisters. We have it too. Peter does not even begin to realize just what he is capable of. So far, Jesus has only alluded to what is in store, that there will be some kind of turning away, but he hasn't spelled it out in any kind of detail. That comes in verse 34. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. 
The rooster is one of those animals that you immediately associate with pride. He struts and he crows and he fancies himself the king of all of the rest. Should have been a warning. Before the sun comes up, Peter will deny knowing Jesus at all. Before a young servant girl, he will argue that he wasn't with him. He will insist three times over he wasn't one of them. To put it in later New Testament terms, Peter will deny being a Christian. He will disown the Lord Jesus. Now, what makes that different from what you see in Judas Iscariot? You'll have to stick around for a couple of weeks before we look at that more fully. But Peter returned. And he did so because God's grace was upholding him. It was Christ's intercession that meant Peter's stumbling did not wind up in full-blown apostasy. What great hope there is bound up in those words, but I have prayed for you. Brothers and sisters, it is because of Christ and Christ alone that we stand. It is because of us, our weakness and sin, that our faith may indeed falter. But it is because of Christ that our faith will never fail. So look to him. Rest in him, trust in him, take comfort in him. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we're so thankful for the promise of your word this day. Lord, we're so thankful that when Christ gives us eternal life, we will never perish and no one will ever snatch us out of his hand. Thank you, Lord, that in the midst of our weakness and our sin, you remain faithful. Lord, there have been times when we have suffered shame over knowing Christ, like Peter. But we are humbled to know that you receive the returning sinner, that you will not suffer shame over knowing us. And Lord, we do return to you. God, we thank you that a broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. Thank you for Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. I pray that all of our hope would be found in him. We worship you, Lord. We give you all of the glory for all that you are doing in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.